the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome. So this is the ninth. Wait, let me see. Let me double check. This is the eighth, the eighth episode of Planted. I got ahead of myself, but it's a special episode because it's actually a combined episode. This is Planted, but it's also an episode for Weed Wonks. And my friend, my lovely, lovely friend, Jordan Wellington, is here. Um, and what episode is it for you? Because I know you've got had a few more than me, for sure. Uh, so this will be episode 26 of the Weed Wonks podcast. This is cool. I'm so glad we're doing this. Yeah, for, for everybody in the listening world, as I say all the time, there are some very goofy smiles on our faces as we're doing it. Sarah and I have been... Uh, I've been talking about recording a, a joint podcast for a little while now, and it took took a few months for us to to for the, the the stars to align in the in the busy metaphysical reality of cannabis policy for us to get here today. But we are here now and excited for the first ever joint episode. I think it's the first ever joint episode of any kind for the Weed Wonks. Uh, so very excited to uh, start to chat about policy. Yeah, it's definitely the first one for Planted as well. And I'm glad it's with you because I love nerding out with you. Yeah, uh, I do as well. And I think this is the perfect place to start. So so I guess, uh, as always, we'll give a shout out to Andrew Livingston, who is also not able to make this episode. But we're going to record later in the week uh, for another show that Andrew will be on. Uh, and he should be around for the next couple of weeks. He's just jamming at the office right now. And so you get Sarah and I. Uh, and we are going to have a really fun conversation about policy. But but first, I wanted to give folks a sense of, uh, of of running down memory lane, because Sarah and I have got a chance to know each other for a little while now. Uh, I had the privilege of being asked to come speak at the San Francisco Task Force on the Implementation of Marijuana Legalization, I believe, in 2016. It seems unlikely it was 2015, but it might have been. It was definitely pre-passing of Prop 64 because you came afterwards to talk more about that once we got into legalization, for sure. Yeah, and it was nice outside. I do remember that the weather was nice. So it couldn't have been November, still warm outside, uh, sometime around springish of 2016, we'll say. Uh, and so I reach out uh, and someone, I don't even remember how the heck we got connected, but someone said, hey, you got to have Jordan come out and talk policy. Uh, and so the, a gentleman by the name of Terrence Allen, uh, who's a friend of Sarah and I's, uh, reached out and said, hey, would you come in and speak to our group and come out to San Francisco? Uh, and Terrence and I like immediately hit it off. We're, we're huge cannabis hospitality and social use nerds. So immediately kind of dived into that space of uh, of equity and, and, and reasonable policy and, and making sure that, that San Francisco implemented in a way that would create business opportunities for a lot of people and at the same time really treat cannabis consumers equally to, to alcohol consumers and things like that. And so I come out to this meeting and it was very, very formal, right? I mean, it was, I mean, not that everybody in the room was formal, but the, the meeting was formal and there were a lot of people. And I think I knew Terrence, I had known Jesse Stout, who's now with uh, Greenbridge Law Firm. Yep. Um, uh, full, I think he's full-time there now. He wasn't at the time. He was kind of doing a bunch of different stuff. Um, and I knew Jesse, and those are the only two people I knew in the room. Uh, and I know Jesse from from previous work. And Sarah's in there. And so all of a sudden, I'm like, and it wasn't like Jordan even give a presentation. It was just like, Jordan, you are now like an ad hoc member of the group, and this is what we're talking about, and let's just like get super nerdy. Yeah, yeah, well, that was that. that was so much fun. I mean, we 
We did the Cannabis Legalization Task Force for three years before its sunset. Terrence was the chair. I was one of two of the co-chairs. And to have you there was really awesome because you had all of this information from Colorado. And one of the things that we always talked about was, why do we have to reinvent the wheel? We should really be looking at what other states are doing and what's been successful and what's what hasn't been. But more importantly, or maybe the most fun of it, was being able to totally just geek out about it. Yeah, yeah, and get super nerdy. So, so we had this, like, I don't know, it was like two-hour-long meeting of big policy stuff. And I said hi to Sarah, and we kind of, like, very first lightly met um, and started chatting afterwards. And and Terrence, like, uh, for those for those in the world that know Terrence, like, that man had a schedule. He was on point. He was keeping it together. And so I was chatting, and it was like, all right, we're going to go smoke some weed and hang out. And it was like, no, Terrence has got, like, 900 things that we got to do. So I dip out. We run to, I think, three different fundraisers for different politicians. I couldn't even remember who because he was just, like, whirlwind of action. And we end up, uh, and I think we have mentioned this group in the past, uh, at the Brownie Mary Club, uh, which is a democratic political organization for cannabis consumers at the Green Door Lounge in San Francisco several hours later. Uh, and that was really kind of like, I think, where we actually first met because it was more real. It was very casual. Yeah. People were just like openly smoking joints and, and talking about local democratic political issues like it was no thing. Uh, and, and from that moment forward, literally every time I come to San Francisco, I know I have like an amazing host in Sarah, as well as many of our other friends out there. And, and we've gotten to hang out there. We've hung out at conferences multiple times. And I even managed to get my little boy Robbie out there. Uh, and Sarah got to meet the Bean one time uh, and hang out with him. And, and then we even got to go to dinner at Terrence's house one night. His amazing husband cooked this like ridiculous dinner for it's like me and you and Terrence yeah. Uh, and Sabrina Frederick, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Sabrina was there, too. She's awesome. And then another time we got to uh, we all got together to go to Flytrap for some really good like Persian fusion food. Yes, which we do. We, we do love the Persian and the Persian fusion and the fusion without the Persian of all kinds. <laughs> yes, yes. That's uh, some good stuff. So, so sorry, sorry, listeners, I, as you kind of, I, I like to walk down memory lane because Sarah and I, uh, we don't get to talk to each other as much as we want to. And I haven't gotten to San Francisco in the last year or so. So I, I'm due for a trip out. Maybe Robbie's like going to be four. So he needs to get back out there and see everybody too. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's fun to just kind of catch up and, and talk about these things. But today, today when we record is a very special day. It is in fact a super day. It is Super Tuesday. Uh, it is we Super are voting. Tuesday. It is Super Tuesday right now as we're recording. You will probably not hear this on Super Tuesday, but it will be shortly after Super Tuesday. And uh, we're going to talk about some Democratic primary stuff. Uh, and, and specifically, we want to talk a little bit about Elizabeth Warren and her cannabis plan that she recently re uh, released about ex uh, ending cannabis prohibition. Uh, and what she would do if she were elected president. Um, but first and foremost, I will I will start with the confessions uh, because everyone should know up front that that Jordan did like a good citizen vote uh, on Super Tuesday. Uh, my Instagram was covered with reminders and my Facebook all about cannabis voter project. We had Sal Pace on previously to talk about that. And if you are a cannabis consumer, that means you need to be a cannabis voter and you need to make sure your politicians know that you are both a cannabis consumer and a voter and that you care about cannabis issues. So I voted. 
Uh, and I voted for Elizabeth Warren in the Colorado Democratic primary. I got to vote by mail, which we super love here in Colorado, uh, and had my ballot dropped off today. Uh, not no 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 anti Bernie sentiment on my end. I'm super Bernie fan, but going to go with the wonky Elizabeth Warren. Probably to be honest with everybody, if went if Andrew Yang hadn't dropped out, I would have been full on the Yang gang. Uh, You're all about uh, the math. All, all, all about the math, all about the universal basic income. One day we'll maybe do an entire episode dedicated to how much Jordan loves universal basic income and thinks it's the solution to the vast majority of the problems we have in this country. But Yang is out. There is no more Yang. And so instead, I voted for Elizabeth Warren uh, and was very proud to do so, but I'm a big fan of many of the other Democratic candidates. Uh, Cory Booker from my home state of New Jersey, as well as uh, Bernie Sanders uh, from the state of Vermont, which we love, and many other places. Uh, not the biggest Bloomberg fan, but you can hate on me for that. Uh, I, I, you know, I maybe know too much about what that dude's really like. Uh, so, <laughs> so I, I came out with my confession uh, about who I voted for, and feel like if we're going to talk about these things, I should probably be upfront and tell you. But Sarah, uh, how, how, did you vote? I did. I voted this morning, and I, I did get my mail-in ballot, but. For some reason, they forgot that I was a Democrat, so I didn't get a full ballot. So I, I went in and actually voted down the street at the Buddhist Center in Oakland. And I, too, though I do love Bernie, I voted for Liz. And she, I, I just, I feel like it's really, really important these days to look at a lot of the things that are going on around cannabis and voting, especially like here in San, in, well, I was going to say here in San Francisco, but I'm in Oakland today. Um, but in California, the way cannabis prices have been going way up, we get a lot of people who get really upset when they see the bottom line on their receipts. And a lot of times, a lot of that stress is put on the people who are working behind the counter. So for me, I use it as a way to do a little stoner civics 101. It's like, guess what? The people in Sacramento don't realize that you hold down a good job, that you're an active participant in society, and you vote. Let them know. Yeah, that, that you care about these issues and the taxes are too damn high. Uh, I had a buddy come back from uh, L.A. and was like raving to me about delivery and was like so excited because he knows I'm a delivery nerd and uh, was like, dude, it was so cool. I like put up on this app like it was a pain in the butt. It took several hours, but like they brought it to me and it was super helpful. And he's like, he's like, the only downside is I spent like I think it was like ninety five dollars for a vape cartridge. He's like. He's like, but the vape cartridge was like 50 bucks. It was like 50 bucks for the vape cartridge and then or, or 60 bucks and then like 30 or 40 dollars in taxes. Yeah, um, that that and that doesn't include the excise tax that that's on the raw flour that was used to make the product. Uh, so they were getting some scratch for that, too, at the state level. Um, but that he was paying like basically a 50 percent at the register effective sales tax rate, which I mean, I like Colorado's sales tax is pretty darn low, and I can't even imagine, even with our cannabis taxes, what that must feel like as a consumer, um, because it's just it's just unbelievable, and and for businesses to have to compete with that, uh, you know, is crazy. But unless unless people speak out and unless they they let folks know that they're voters, it's not going to change no. uh, anytime soon. Yeah, it's not because and and with the people who are you know making policies. Perception and education are two super important things because these choices are being made out of perceptions of who's using cannabis, why they're using it, 
Um, and, and these are things that, you know, a lot of us who are working in the cannabis industry and people who have been severely impacted, like the critically ill and veterans, are politically active, but they're not seeing in Sacramento, Washington, wherever your capital is in your state, that where you have cannabis, that there's a much more broader cross-section and there's still a lot of education about the viability of using cannabis, as far as like medicinally or even, you know, I hate the word recreation, but because I am one of those people, I am one of those people that feels like whatever we put in our body makes a difference. So we should treat it as such. Um, that's not to say that I'm against getting high because, you know, I'm not. But I think that, you know, a euphoria creates balance. Yeah, it's it's a little bit more complicated than that, and and I think that there is some 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 issues when when you see language like recreational, it means it's indulgent, it's unnecessary, it's you know, and 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 it's more complicated than that. And people use cannabis for all sorts of reasons, and so um, you know, with that in mind, we we want to talk about what what it means to really end end federal prohibition. Uh, what happens when we have our next Democratic president? Uh, what happens when we have a president in the White House that has pledged to end cannabis prohibition and shifted the conversation so much, even over just the last four years since we had our last Democratic president, that that ending prohibition becomes viable? And so when 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 Elizabeth Warren, who's got a plan for everything, comes out with a plan for cannabis, you know we want to talk about it on the weed wonks. We want to we want to dive into what it means. We want to talk about the good. Uh, and maybe poke a little bit of fun at the bad in, in, in a way to encourage things to get better um, and to kind of make all of us laugh because the world ain't going to be perfect no matter how hard we try. Um, so we want to start there. We want to start talking about Elizabeth Warren's plan. Um, if you want to take a look at it yourself, super easy to find. I did the magic legal research of Googling Elizabeth Warren marijuana plan, and it was the first link that popped up. So, uh, you know, kudos to their SEO as well as Jordan's ability to use Google to avoid doing legal research at any point in time, um, <laughs> uh, which I've successfully done for many years. Uh, I don't even know how to log into my Westlaw account anymore, really. Uh, so we are uh, we, we want to talk through and talk through the various aspects of of Elizabeth Warren's plan what she dives into we're going to talk on a lot of things that we we've, we've discussed previously on the podcast timing seems to work out really well uh, because we're going to talk a bunch about the more act we're going to talk about expungement we're going to talk about different state-based efforts and social equity themes that we've been hitting on a lot on the weed wonks lately um, so uh, ready to get started and ready excited to dive into what this is so the first thing the first part of it that I think is important to note, and this is really where a lot of we need to make decisions about federal reform, is Elizabeth Warren uh, commits to supporting the Moore Act, which we discussed last week with uh, Justin Streckel of uh, Normal. And uh, what the first and primary thing that that bill is going to do is it's going to remove marijuana from the list of controlled substances. Uh, so it's not it's not rescheduling marijuana. It's not leaving it in, um, but but adjusting it for depending on things. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is coming out and saying that she fully supports completely descheduling, removing marijuana entirely from the list of controlled substances, essentially ending any type of uh, specific uh, prohibition as well as kind of opening it up for, for norm, no more normal commercial regulation of the marijuana industry. And. I, I think that that's really important to note because one of the things, one of the challenges that we've had in, in all the states and, and especially in California is that 
there is so much more to having a cannabis business. There are so many more requirements that make it really hard for people to succeed, which isn't just about the entrepreneur working in it, but is also about the people working for them. This year, we're seeing a great correction in California, um, having people being laid off, having businesses close. And I mean, and a lot of that also has to do with the fact of like taxes and what people can claim and people can't in a cannabis business as well. Yeah. So descheduling solves 280E, right? First and foremost, off the bat, we don't like 280E. No. Uh, unfair, unfair taxation, dumping tea in the, 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 the Boston River or whatever the heck they did all that time ago. We still don't like taxes here on the weed wonks. Uh, we are we are anti-unfair taxation and 280E certainly is. Uh, one day maybe we'll talk about this nutrient tax issue I'm working on in Colorado because that's a more unfair double taxation. We get a lot of that in the cannabis sector. Uh, and so it will deal with that. It will also address banking and make sure that that banking issues will, at least from a government regulatory perspective, go away. Not totally clear exactly how quickly the private sector is going to get off the ground, but it would also address banking. It would address things relating to homeownership and loans and um, employees being able to uh, cannabis business employees you know, who have issues with their mortgages or, or savings accounts or anything like that. A lot of that stuff goes away entirely. It is in one foul swoop, kind of addressing many of the, the octopus tentacles of problems that uh, prohibition creates. And it'll um, also, that if on the federal level, if we make changes with that too, it'll also help some of our more vulnerable populations, like people in Section 8 housing, so that they can use cannabis instead of other harmful drugs like opiates and not lose their homes. Yeah, it, it absolutely helps with people under federal housing vouchers. Uh, it should address issues also relating to uh, unemployment status. Uh, hopefully it would also kind of start to do some work around uh, not just not just homelessness, but but a variety of issues relating to you know parental rights and um, employee rights and, and who can use cannabis off the job and drug testing and kind of all of these other things that kind of come along with federal cannabis prohibition. If you enter a world where it is no longer federally illegal, it's a lot harder for companies to maintain uh, aggressive mandatory drug testing policies that fire people for any time they're using cannabis in the last month because it stays in your system. Um, so that would be a, a huge, huge boon. Um, and, and Elizabeth Warren, who's already signed on to that bill, uh, starts out kind of her plan by saying, you know, I would support the full passage of the Moore Act uh, through Congress and encourage them to get their act together. But, uh, you know, a good plan doesn't come with contingencies. And so should the MORE Act not pass, and the MORE Act will continue to come up throughout this uh, conversation, but should the MORE Act not pass, uh, you know, uh, presidential candidate Warren also, Senator Warren, has some uh, some other things that she would like to do. And, and, and this first one, I think, is particularly interesting because um, I don't know that we've ever really had this be the case. Uh, she also pledges to appoint heads to the Department of Justice, Drug Enforcement Agency, Food and Drug administration and the ONDCP, which is essentially the White House's Office on Drug Control Policy, uh, that will support ending cannabis prohibition, that support legalization. And so that's so unbelievably important. If folks remember uh, when President Trump first got elected and uh, uh, appointed our, our uh, essentially the cannabis movement's enemy, Jeff Sessions, who is, who is our, not our sworn enemy, he has sworn against us. Um, we're willing to evolve on Jeff Sessions if he's willing to evolve, but he hasn't exactly been a friend uh, into the Department of Justice. And that did not help. 
the cannabis industry at all. And so even if it takes a little while for the MORE Act to pass, because Congress moves slow, uh, under a Warren administration, we would see people who support legalization as the heads of all of these critical agencies. Uh, obviously, there are huge issues with the DEA still ongoing. Uh, ONDCP is a major kind of player in terms of the drug policy sphere. So having supporters there uh, also would be very helpful. And then obviously, at some point, and this is kind of the, the, the downside to federal descheduling that most people don't like to talk about, is that means the FDA, in one way or another, is likely to get somewhat involved in product safety and cannabis regulation and oversight. Um, so having someone who's supportive in that role too, even though you might be thinking, hey, well, why would the FDA even be involved? Well, if it's a human consumable in this country, the FDA is typically involved. Uh, and it's not crazy to think that they would not have at least some role in terms of product safety. So having friendlies at each one of those organizations will be huge. Uh, and I think important to note, not just for marijuana, but for really the drug war as a whole, right? Yeah. Having someone who believes in ending the war on cannabis at the head of the DEA means we're also likely to have someone who understands that perpetuating the drug war uh, across the board is probably not the best direction that our country should go in from a policy perspective. But I also think that it has to be where not only do they have to be friendly to it, but they have to be open to be educated because there is just a lot of misinformation out there. Part of you know what I do as an educator is not only you know, talking about the stigma of the past, but also a lot of the things that are going on now with cannabis normalization and a lot of the false claims that are being made around it too. So we have to make sure that our policymakers and people who are in charge of these divisions actually have, uh, not that they need to be experts, but that they understand how it works and have reliable sources for information to educate themselves to make sound judgment around it because that's that's where safe access lies yeah oh absolutely right it, it, it has to be that they that they want to learn because i think anyone that gets elected to a lot of these organizations are not going to be cannabis policy experts and regulatory experts in the way that people have lived this industry for many years um you know and, and when you think about department of justice and, and dea even in and of itself, the ability to appoint someone who is at least is supportive of legalization and ending prohibition is, is massively complex. These are existing bureaucracies that have people that work there that are going to need leadership that they can get behind. And so you're going to really have to thread a needle between someone who the rank and file of the DEA would accept and someone who actually thinks that, you know, maybe the work they're doing is, is, is more harmful than helpful in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's going to be an interesting needle to thread when you start thinking about what that means in practice, right? You, you, uh, you can't have a situation where the president is appointing a leadership person to a law enforcement agency and then have every member of that agency like in open revolt against that leader. Like that's not going to be good for, for ending prohibition because it's just going to gum up the works of everything. Well, I mean, that's kind of also what we're looking at, even with the presidential election. Who is it that's going to be able to work well with everybody? Because you can get someone in, but if you don't have the House and the Senate willing to work with them, that can be problematic, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we And we have seen that more than once over the last... Uh, uh, you know, 15 years as, as party leadership and control of Congress has changed. And when they're when they're not unified, uh, you know, as we've seen for, for most of Trump's presidency, not much is getting done uh, across the board. I know this is this is like deviating a little bit around away from what we were talking about, but it is related. 
Trust me. What do you think when we're looking at this, we're looking at the changes, say, say Warren wins and she sets this up. Um, what do you, where do you see in your opinion, the importance of somebody with a harm reduction background being involved? I mean, I think that it's almost like, how do you put someone in charge of one of these agencies that supports legalization without them having a harm reduction mindset, right? Isn't, isn't that the, the, entire, eh, the entire movement to end the drug war is based on a harm reductionist mindset? So I think it's, I think it's integral. I, I think you can move forward without it, right? I mean, that's the whole point is we're not arguing that everybody should go and consume cannabis or other drugs. We're arguing that prohibition of those drugs does more harm to society than good, that that what we need to do is focus on policies that reduce harm to people and not not make what it sometimes is, is quite frankly, addiction and abuse worse. Right. You know, it's not denying the fact that addiction exists and that drug abuse exists. It certainly does. The question is, OK, well, well, that's a facet of human culture and society that has existed since time immemorial. And so what are we going to do about it? And so I would hope that whoever gets appointed has a harm reductionist mindset and either comes from that background or understands that, you know, that's the point that everyone, at least uh, in the movement to end the war on drugs, is trying to do. We are trying to end uh, we're trying to end prohibition because it does more harm than good. Right. Um, and so I think it's important that we, we have someone leading these agencies if they're going to be supporting this effort who, who either come from that background or at least ascribe to that theory and recognize its validity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe have some some harm reduction experts that they can lean on for further clarity. Uh, yeah, one one would hope that they would lean quite a bit on uh, you know uh, folks f- folks uh, from organizations like Marijuana Policy Project and Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Uh, to organizations that we're hugely supportive of, organizations like Normal uh, and Americans for Safe Access, um, you know, critical consumer and patient rights organizations, as well as, uh, you know, commu- uh, community members and industry members that have a tremendous amount of experience. Someone like yourself that's, uh, you know, not only worked in government, but really been an educator for, you know, a majority of their career, you know, having having folks like you at the table uh, to really kind of explain what this means from a human perspective is is going to be huge. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I mean, it's something that I'm very passionate about, but it's also just keeping people safe because as human beings, I feel like in a lot of ways, when we're looking at stuff like this, we think things are just black and white and they're not, it's very nuanced. And like a, a lot of the work that I do with people is how to create a safe container for experimentation, but also noting that in the case of cannabis, it's not for everybody. Not everybody is good with phytocannabinoids, even though we create our own cannabinoids in our bodies. We may not be able to take in some from the outside world, you know, and just because it's not good for one person doesn't mean that it's bad for everybody, but it really is about treating a substance with respect and being mindful and 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 you know something that we're seriously lacking nowadays uh, critical thought yeah yeah well well let, let let's hope we'll introduce a new level of critical thinking into the white house and uh, i think elizabeth warren satisfies some of those the, those requirements uh 
you know, even if you're not the biggest fan of the senator from Massachusetts, although I certainly am. Um, The other thing that she talks about doing uh, is reinstituting the coal memo. We've seen that from a lot of different Democratic candidates. Um, I would hope I'm just going to put a plea out there that like it's easy to say we'll reinstitute the coal memo. Um, And at this point, I think everyone in the industry longs for the days of the coal memo, which gave us a little bit more regulatory certainty, a little bit more of a North Star to shoot for. but I would hope in, in, in a really wonky uh, Warren administration that we could do a little bit better, right? Like, do we really need to institute a, a, a what'll be almost a decade old policy at that point? Or maybe, just maybe, we could throw a little bit more substance, a little more nuance that we were just talking about into that coal memo and say, yeah, we're going to get that coal memo, but we're going to build on it. We're going to make it better because it's, I mean, we're, it's going to be almost a decade later. And we, we just frankly know more about cannabis regulation than we did in 2013 when that sucker came out. So um, what we want to make sure we do is like, yeah, absolutely, Elizabeth Warren, you should totally reinstate the coal memo. It would be great if the Department of Justice gave somewhat more clear guidelines for businesses to sleep at night. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think it's important to note that while the coal memo was great, it is not like the greatest thing in the history of time. And uh, some evolution of what the coal memo might could include or adjustments to kind of addressing some issues it would be, uh, you know, I think very helpful in terms of uh, constructing policy, because there was a lot of stuff in the coal memo and the way it was referenced that had wonky downstream consequences like. Um, when the banking guidance referenced compliance with the coal memo and the coal memo requires, uh, you know, not only a compliance with every single state regulation, but also like addressing issues related to drug driving. And, and inadvertently, they made people's bank accounts contingent on the state doing things relating to drug driving. Um, you know, maybe kind of some subtlety in terms of what the coal memo looks like would be huge. And then a solid plug for our friend Adam Smith, uh, the Alliance for Sensible Markets, who was on a previous episode, is maybe throwing something about interstate commerce uh, into that new coal memo as well. Because I know from a California perspective, uh, you know, there's all kinds of market problems out there and regulatory failure that we can dive into one day. But if we could create a situation where California could export cannabis to New York and New Jersey, instead of building new cannabis cultivation infrastructure in these states, we'd probably find a more efficient uh, pathway to not only legalization, but but things like equity and stuff like that as well. Especially when we're we're getting into the conversations about appellations, you know, I mean, going into wine like everyone likes their napa and sonoma wines in other parts of the county or the country why wouldn't they want their humboldt cannabis yeah i I think we all do i mean i certainly want uh i I like my colorado cannabis not gonna not gonna knock all our cultivators here but uh, oh no definitely not that (laughs) no no no. i just want my cannabis from everywhere yeah it's just trying different things from different places yeah, and generating efficiency for consumers in you know places where, you know, quite frankly, we know twenty years from now cannabis is not going to be grown, but right now it's being squoze into all kinds of places where it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So, uh, appreciate Elizabeth Warren want to reinstitute the coal memo. We like that, but we might suggest a, a little bit more subtlety and some improvement and development over time on that one. And then the only other thing she mentioned is, which I thought was really interesting in this section on what she would do 
in advance of the Morac passing is developing programs to address racial injustice in cannabis and, and, and participation in marijuana legalization. And there's more on that later in the plan. But I think it's really interesting to note here that even in the absence of the MORE Act, while federal prohibition still exists, whether it's MORE Act, States Act, or whatever, without even passing that, she wants the federal government to invest into cannabis businesses, which is kind of amazing. Like you would have the federal government giving out loans and grants for people to open federally illegal businesses, um, which kind of has some, some beautiful uh, absurdity and kind of goes to how ridiculous this entire concept of you know, a state regulated markets under federal prohibition gets in there. But now all of a sudden we're going to have we're, we're not going to have federal legalization, but the federal government will be giving out money for people to violate federal law. Like here, individual, here's half a million dollars to go open up your cannabis business. Uh, that is federally illegal. And the Department of Justice may come arrest you at any moment. But here's the cash. Go have a good time. Uh, <laughs> What, what do you think the impact on of that would be for some of the smaller businesses? Because I know here in California, a lot of our smaller producers are really suffering. I, you know, I mean, I, I think that anything that can be done to help struggling small businesses in California at this point would be welcomed. And, and access to capital is absolutely a huge aspect to that. Uh, the ability to, to not have banking leads to lack of loans, leads to access to capital issues and things like that. So absolutely, I think it'll help. Um, at the end of the day, though, um, all the money in the world, as we've seen from the most well-capitalized players in California, like you, you know, it doesn't in California, it doesn't matter whether you had lots and lots of money at the start or whether you were super broke at the start, because like either way, you're just struggling right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many discounted loans from the federal government will overcome California's regulatory ineptitude. Um, you know, I mean, the fact is, like, unless they, you know, you, like it doesn't matter. right? I mean, we, we've worked with companies that had millions and millions and millions of dollars at the outset and spent all that money and still didn't get their doors open and are out of business. Right. Right. I mean, she so, could also uh, look into things like like when we uh, when I when I worked in nonprofit, I worked with a group that did IDA programs, which was for people starting new businesses, you know, buying a home, sending their kids to school for every dollar they saved. We matched it by two dollars. Yeah. And I think that there are all kinds of programs that that will help. I don't want to poo poo the idea of getting of access to capital because we, we talk about that all the time as being one of the biggest barriers to equity in the industry. Um, so it, it absolutely will help. Um, I just don't want I, I just don't want people to confuse it to be like, oh, well, you can just throw money at the California problem. Right. No. There's lots of money in California. The problem is not money. The problem no. may be some people have money and others don't. But at the end of the day, the, the, the issue in California is the regulatory system and, and, and kind of people's struggles to get their business open um, and things of that nature. And so until we're able to kind of address some of those issues related to overregulation, taxation, like we talked about earlier, uh, just ability to get licensed and, and have a competitive business vis-a-vis -vis the illicit market, um, you know, I, I don't know how much that's really going to solve those problems. But uh, it have to be you know, a lot of money. Because when you're looking when you're looking at like taxation regulations or just even for example like in San Francisco, in order to apply for your permit, you have to already have an address. So people are paying rent on spaces for years that they're not getting any money out of. Right, for years. And so I I I mean, as much as I want to say like, oh yeah, that would be a huge help, I think 
in states with more efficiently operating regulatory models, it would probably have a bigger impact than uh, in states where they're, you know, really need to do some work to kind of like, you know, they got to think, pardon the pun, but they got to do some weeding, right? Like there's a lot of stuff in there that, that what like you got this beautiful garden that's covered in weeds and they need to, they, they, they need to cull the weeds out of the, the cannabis regulatory garden in California. Um, I, that might be one of my, 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 my more favorite recent puns on cannabis. We always make the weed joke, but I don't usually use it in terms of like actual gardening weeding. So I'm going to give myself a thumbs up for that one and pat myself on the back. I um, think you should make a t-shirt. Oh, I like that. Weeding out the cannabis regulatory garden in California. <laughs> uh, so so the, uh, the, the next part of Elizabeth Warren's plan, which is something we've talked about last week a bunch, something that we are going to keep hitting here on the Weed Wonks, have a, a show planned in, in the upcoming weeks because I want to dive into Colorado's work on expungement. And this is really, really cool stuff, everybody. We know the basics, right? Wiping the slate clean for folks who uh, have a criminal record relating to cannabis, and, and you know, how do you have, how, how do you end cannabis prohibition without recognizing that there are still folks walking around with a scarlet letter? Uh, but what Elizabeth Warren here does is really, really interesting. Um, although it's a bit of a sleight of hand when it comes to the plan. So, what she says is that she supports the Moore Act and doing expungement as said in the Moore Act, which is an incredibly expansive uh, expungement measure that would literally expunge all federal cannabis crimes uh, based on any conviction after 1971. So it's like it is the whole enchilada of cannabis offenses. Um, so she says that she's going to support that. But then she also says, uh, I will uh, prioritize an accessible expungement process for, for federal convictions for marijuana use and possession and incentivize states to do the same. And so uh, it's kind of unclear how that actually means. Is Elizabeth Warren saying that she supports expunging all federal crimes relating to cannabis, uh, or is she uh, just in favor of expunging uh, possession and use offenses? Um, and getting clarification on, on a subtle issue like that, you know, you know, I already voted for her, so I don't know how much it's going to help her with me. But uh, I'd like to better understand what where she sits on that, because I know that that's a, a very thorny issue that we're constantly dealing with. And in, in, even in Colorado now is how far should expungement go? Who deserves to get relief? Uh, and were people who were engaged in a more commercial oriented enterprise of either cultivation, manufacturing or, or distribution, uh, should they get relief? Or is it just the, the people who bought who just bought it? Yeah. And I, I think that that also just points to the fact that no matter who comes up, who matter who wins and comes up with policy, that there's definitely going to be some need for education and also just highlighting the fact that um, that's not really supporting racial justice and equity because a lot of the people who are in jail and it's not necessarily for possession and use, but it's for growing and distributing are people of color. And that's, I mean, we can't be having people rotting in jail while we have other people making money doing what they went to jail for. And the fact of the matter is that a majority of these people are white that are doing it legally now. Yeah. And, and that is the, that's, we could dive into all the socioeconomic reasons why, and we, we, we don't mean it as a way to judge the folks who are being successful in this industry. We Not appreciate our cannabis entrepreneurs, but, uh, yeah, getting getting anybody that is in jail for a cannabis crime out of jail uh, is definitely mission one at the Vicente Cedarberg law firm. 
um, and, and the work that we do. Uh, and, and removing that scarlet letter from folks uh, is also really important. And so we, we would like, definitely supportive of, of, of what Elizabeth Warren is suggesting, but definitely want to encourage her to go go on full more act style and expunge everything as opposed to just uh, you know, use and possession, which is helpful and we, and, and, and is good. But I got to also imagine like most of those crimes are prosecuted at the state level, right? Like how many, how many times is the federal government really prosecuting a possession and use crime? It seems like much more likely that the federal government, like that the, that the crimes that were prosecuted federally were more related to, to distribution and, and cultivation than, uh, you know, I would assume that, you know, petty offense of someone having a half ounce of marijuana, it's unlikely that they were prosecuted federally unless they were caught in a federal park or at a border or something like that. Um, most of those are state and local based offenses. And so um, obviously getting those expunged is huge, but we want to make sure that it's, it's the full enchilada. We don't want we don't want half the taco here. We, we want the full enchilada. Mm -hmm. um, so so the other couple of uh, things that you talked about, um, and then I want to get into some of the, the, the nerdier, but I'm going to group a couple of them together. And that is what I'm going to call addressing the collateral consequences of cannabis prohibition for a variety of vulnerable populations uh, or disenfranchised groups. And so I'm so that we're going to we're going to kind of squish together uh, immigration issues, veterans and uh, 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 Native American tribes. And so uh, one, uh, Elizabeth Warren wants to address issues relating to immigration, uh, but for both folks in terms of uh, deportations and access to citizenship for people with marijuana possession and convictions, as well as for folks in the industry. She talks about wanting to allow veterans to recommend cannabis, to direct the VA to proactively engage in medical cannabis research, and then finally uh, allow uh, VA loans for industry employees. We've heard over the years that uh, cannabis industry employees who are veterans struggle to get loans. And then finally, um, she does mention potential federal barriers to Native American tribes engaging in the cannabis industry. Um, and really across the board, you know, it's more of a, a general statement that the federal government shouldn't be getting in the way of, of Native American tribes' uh, ability to engage in commercial enterprises. But obviously here especially, uh, we would definitely like to see uh, – you know, uh, the most expansive opportunity possible for, for all folks. And that would certainly include, uh, oh, you know, creating, uh, removing any barriers that would exist for Native American tribes to participate in the cannabis industry. Yeah, I, I, it's just so important. It's just so important, especially, they're all important, but the one that I think about the most is the one at the VA, especially because people can be denied treatment if they are using cannabis in some cases. So they may not have access to their pain meds. They may lose their benefits. These are things that we really need to be aware of, and especially with the way how successful it's been with helping people with PTSD. Um, it, it's just, it's imperative that you know, whether or not she wins, that we continue these conversations. And the tribal sovereignty is a big thing, too. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely a group of disadvantaged persons. And have you, 
Um, have you personally run into a lot of issues? I, I mean, I'm sure in, in all of your education and the work that you've done, you've spent plenty of time with veterans who use cannabis for, for palliative purposes. Mm -hmm. um, what what are they running into when they try to work with the VA? Or is it just a totally don't ask, don't tell situation? I mean, what is it's, it's how are they navigating that bureaucracy? It's a lot of don't ask, don't tell. I mean, even was it a, a while ago, I did a I did a veteran show, a cable access show. And even before I got on. Um, on on the soundstage and I was talking to somebody who's there from the VA and they were going to be representing that you know she wasn't anti-cannabis when we were having the conversations but once we got on screen once we were in front of the cameras that whole thing came out so it's like there are people in the VA who understand that it is helpful and they've heard stories from people but the official line has to be that they're against it and then you have those hard asses there that you know, will cause problems for vets when they come in if they talk about their cannabis use. I have had veterans who have said that they've lost their benefits. I have other veterans that just, by and large, just say, I don't talk about it with them because they're afraid of it. Um, and, you know, and we have a lot of vets that are indigent populations. They're, they're not making money. They're not working. Um, you know, they need help. And so their benefits are, I mean, they're always valuable, but they're even more so valuable for these vulnerable populations. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's almost like the scariest thing in the world is, is feeling like you can't tell your doctor about, uh, you know, a, a psychoactive substance that you're taking. Uh, and a, if a it's making you feel better. pharmacologically active. Yeah. You know? And it's and it's helping you more than and what they were giving you and I mean, and that's one of the things like when I work with major healthcare institutions and do trainings with them one of the biggest things that physicians say is that they learn from their patients and the conversation is normalization so it's you know they want to they want to know how to to do this um, to help their patients but they're not they're unable to have these conversations right now. So I, I think, you know, the, the most important thing is just that there be a way that veterans feel supported in this because to have the stress of – to have the relief of finding something that helps but the stress of having to hide it, um, that also creates trauma. And so I think we just have a lot to do about that. But that's, that's, pretty, much, that's, that's pretty much all I have to say about that. You know I mean, uh, yeah, I, you know, this one's almost like a no brainer, right? Like the veterans are a vulnerable population who have served our country and helped keep us free. So let's stop. Let's stop giving them the short end of the stick. Um, there was another in really interesting thing that that maybe doesn't involve a ton of discussion, but um, the idea that that Elizabeth Warren comes out up front and pledges to do everything she can to help D.C. implement uh, their market, which I don't think is totally within her control, but probably she'll be able to use the bully pulpit to maybe get some movement on. Uh, I just want to note that that obviously that's a huge issue. Uh, you know, the sovereignty of the people of Washington D.C. is is a much broader, complicated political issue that uh, has has been going on for years, and and issues relating to statehood and all kinds of other things. Um, but I just you know when I when I read that, I immediately thought to myself, oh, I'm curious what the population of Washington D.C. is because. We always talk about uh, all these different states coming online. And so I, I looked it up. There's 720,000 people uh, based on current projections that live in Washington, D.C., uh, which would make Washington, D.C. Uh, not if it was given its own state would not be the smallest state in the country. It is larger than Vermont or Wisconsin 
in population in and of itself. Um, and so if DC were to be opened up to a regulated market, that would be the equivalent of uh, regulation or legalization occurring from market size in Vermont and Wisconsin. So that's you know, probably a, a you know incredibly exciting thing for those of us in the industry that are looking to get you know more and more uh, markets open and up for legalization. Um, and it, did you? And then the other. Th- I, I was just, I'm sorry to interrupt, but did you see like the racial breakdown of DC? Uh, I, I went to school, <laughs> University of Maryland. Spent plenty of time in DC. I don't need to look at any breakdowns. I'm well aware of the 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 ethnic homogeny that exists in Washington, D.C., as well as the fact that it is a uh, you know very strong African-American community. So I think the opportunities for entrepreneurship in minority communities in D.C. would probably outpace a place like Colorado by, we'll just say, a healthy margin. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about for for those, I, I, I too, was aware of, of the breakdown, but for people who may not be, because we are looking at a population of about the census said 49% of black people in DC. So, I mean, that is huge. Uh, It's enormous. Um, It's enormous as well as the, just the political ramifications of having a regulated market in DC and, and, you know, DC having cannabis stores and not looking any different. And then world leaders from, from, you know, European nations and African nations and South American nations and, and Asian countries coming to, to, to the U and, and whoever else I forgot, I wasn't making a list that's exclusive, but, uh, it, you know, this idea of like people coming to our nation's capital from all over the world, seeing that a regulated cannabis market, well, we really like, and are super supportive of is like really not all that exciting. It's just like, literally there's a store and we're not arresting people and that's about it. Um, and I think that that may also have a huge impact. So for social equity purposes, for market access purposes, for the people of Washington, D.C., as well as for the good of the entire world, uh, we certainly want that to move forward. Um, Elizabeth Warren did mention one other thing around the international community, which I think is important, is is support for ending marijuana, uh, ending marijuana prohibition. Uh, internationally, obviously, is a major issue. It's going to be all kinds of complexities when you get to uh, UN drug treaties and things like that, and 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 kind of dealing with this issue politically with with countries like Russia and China that probably are not exactly on the progressive side of the cannabis policy issue at the moment. But um, having someone in the White House that that wants to end prohibition in D.C. as well as support internationally and just the the, the international impact that D.C. legalization can have in and of itself. Um, is a major, major, major uh, step up, but uh, you know, I you know, I guess uh, finally, but not last, or 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 at the end of our conversation, but foremost in our minds is is this discussion around equity in the cannabis sector. Um, and Elizabeth Warren actually had you know, out of all of her plan, you know, this was one of the more detailed areas. Um, obviously supports the MORE Act and the funds there that are designated for community reinvestment. Uh, And we talked a bunch about those uh, on the past episode. Um, Also, there's a note that they intend to strip funds from federal law enforcement agencies in states that still prohibit marijuana if they enforce their laws disproportionately, which I just read and was like, I mean, you are you are, you are talking about stuff that will make me happy until the cows come home. When we talk about stripping money away from law enforcement agencies that uh, meet out enforcement in racially disproportionate ways, uh, you know, talk about t- talk about taking a bite out of uh, you know disproportionate arrest rates. So I thought that was you know really exciting and kind of a very very cool 
uh, a, you know, thing for her to come out and say that, you know, right off the bat, like I would actually take money away from people who are doing the wrong thing, which, you know, uh, I'm, I'm all for, uh, as we try to kind of figure out how to move forward from a, from a, a, a hyper militarized police state into one where, uh, we have a little bit more freedom in our country. So, uh, taking money away from the cops when they, when, when they racially discriminate against people seems like a good motivator for them. To, to start doing the right thing. Yeah, it'll, it'll make people pay attention. That's for sure. Yeah, it's not a light-handed approach. It's not a quiet backroom conversation of, could you stop all that stuff? It's like very clear, like the thing that we know you care about is funding and we're going to attack that uh, right off the bat. So the other notes that she had um, was uh, in terms of supporting equity in the industry was, uh, supporting unions and preventing anti-union behavior, uh, ending banking issues so folks can get loans, probably the biggest issue of all um, in terms of helping resolve the equity issue or one of them, uh, absolutely. Loans for women-owned and minority-owned cannabis businesses, obviously addressing that access to capital issue. And, and the, you know, we've talked uh, a, a lot about the racial wealth gap and how that implicates uh, you know, communities of color and their ability to uh, fundraise to start marriage marijuana businesses among their friends and family and their social networks, uh, as well as using antitrust laws to prevent overconsolidation in the cannabis industry and removing collateral sanctions. So that would be things like suitability requirements. So folks who were have a drug conviction, uh, you know, in some states are prohibited from participating in the industry. And so Elizabeth Warren wants to kind of, you know, address those issues as well as, um, you know, the antitrust laws to prevent overconsolidation is certainly a very, very interesting uh, you know, issue that she, that, that is consistent among kind of all of her rhetoric on, on multiple issues and something we don't see a lot of enforcement on antitrust issues at the federal level in this country. So how that might play out in the cannabis space is certainly, uh, a very interesting issue to follow. I wonder how that'll also affect laws in other States about people being able to grow their own cannabis, because in a lot of States where there's been, talk about people not being allowed to grow their own, that to me smacks of big business trying to influence policy so that people can't provide their own cannabis. And also, when we're looking at the banking portion of it, it's also a public safety issue because if we've got a lot of people running around with cash in their pockets going to dispensaries, they can be targets in high crime areas, although we know that through a lot of... Um, we know that areas where there are dispensaries, they don't tend to be high crime areas. Most of the time, actually, they end up um, making the area safer. That's what we've been seeing, at least in California. Yeah, and the data bears that out in, in, in Colorado and, and, and in other states as well. Um, you know, so we, we, we certainly want to encourage that kind of entrepreneurial enforcement. And, and, and I think this is just another point where I will make a quick plea that, like, if we could end federal prohibition so so we can buy weed with credit cards, I think all the cannabis community would be all the more happy um, because it's like the only thing that we pay cash for anymore in our family, at least. So, uh, you know, credit cards, uh, bank access, reduce the cash issue uh, are certainly kind of major things that would come all boiling back up to the main point that we started with, which is uh, a lot of this stuff kind of naturally flows from simply just removing cannabis from the list of controlled substances, supporting the MORE Act, getting things moving at the federal level, any kind of activity that we can get done, whether 
to more acts, states act, whatever we can do to move this forward. Uh, you know, we want to we want to support presidential candidates uh, who genuinely believe in cannabis reform, understand the damage and harm that the drug war has caused. And uh, we would rather not support presidential candidates who are currently pretending to support marijuana legalization uh, because of its political uh, advantageous status at the moment. And just remember, vote. Vote and let people know how you feel. It's, it's not a time to be in the cannabis closet because we need to let our politicians know that we have, we have jobs, we're active members of society, and we're watching what they're doing. Yeah, I think the, the, the term you used is stoner civics, um, yeah. which, I, uh, which I love and am probably going to crib and steal at different points uh, <laughs> over the years. So, so if, you ever hear, if you ever hear me say stoner civics, uh, we can give all credit and due to Sarah where, where I first heard the term here on this episode of the Weed Wonks and planted the first ever joint episode for both our podcasts. Hopefully many more to come in the future when we have a chance to talk about some stuff. I want to dive into some education issues around California and some other fun stuff when we have a chance to, to follow up and talk again on a future episode. Um, but with that, I think, I think we're kind of out of time. Yeah, Probably we are. We talked a little bit longer than we, we even <laughs> planned to, but I'm glad we got a chance to catch up. Uh, so thank you so much, Sarah, for joining an episode of The Weed Wonks. And thank you uh, and for I'm being so, on Planted. <laughs> yes, I'm so excited that we got to do this. Uh, so with that, I'm just going to say stay nerdy, everybody. And to that, I'll say get active, be supportive, be kind. Thanks, everybody. And tune in. He does a weekly. I do a monthly. Tune into both of us. Take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.